Welcome to episode 14 of the Via Emmaus podcast, where we'll be discussing Leviticus in line with our Bible reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. So let's jump right in. So last time we kind of looked at Leviticus 1 through 17. We're kind of pick up in that area. So let's start with Leviticus 17 verses um, 1 through 8 explains the place of worship. So in verse 4, we see that bloodshed that is not applied at the gate invites the judgment of God. He shall be cut off. What application does Leviticus 17 have for us today? Yeah, maybe just to widen that question a little bit, what does the whole book of Leviticus have to do with us today, yeah, right? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's so many specific applications for where the blood is applied, how the priests are to do that, how the sacrifices are to be given. Chapter 17 talks about the life being in the blood and all of these right. things. And of course, we know that these things are not being reproduced today mm-hmm. and something has changed. And I think the thing that keeps us uh, on right track is remembering that everything in the Old Testament is leading us to Jesus. Um, in First Timothy 2, it talks about how Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. Right. Jesus is also the mediator between the Old Testament and the New, mm-hmm. the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, right? When he came and shed his blood, he put an end to all the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, fulfilling all of that. And so now we stand in Christ and his completed work. So when we think about the place of sacrifice, all of this is leading us to Jesus, Right? In fact, the, the location uh, when the people of Israel would go into the land, God was going to put his name uh, on a place, and that place would ultimately be Jerusalem. So we'll see that when we get to Deuteronomy, especially Deuteronomy 12, um, that there's a place where God's name is going to be. Um, but when we come to the New Testament, and there's a debate that Jesus has with the woman at the well, right? And she says, you worship in Jerusalem, we worship at our mountain. What, what, are, we, what are we to do with that? Jesus says that there's going to come a day when you will neither worship in Jerusalem nor at this mountain, uh, but rather true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Right. And so what we're reminded of, and what we take so commonplace today, is that the place of worship is where the Spirit of God is. It is where the Spirit of Christ is. It is where the people of God gather together in the name of Christ. So as Hebrews 12 will speak of, that we gather at Mount Zion and we gather with the people of God in Christ. And so how does Leviticus 17 apply to us today? Well, it applies to us through Christ. And right. we can be thankful that what has taken place there has now been completed and applied in greater ways in him. So Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Does this mean that mankind can gain salvation by keeping the law? Yeah, you could certainly read it that way, right? If you just take that verse out of context. Um, I think it's always important to see that these words are written in the context of the covenant that is being ratified at that time. If we remember, all of Leviticus is being given to the people of God at Mount Sinai uh, when God is making a covenant with them. Mm -hmm. And part of that covenant stipulation is uh, God has chosen them to be his people. This is all entirely of grace, but they're still required to keep the covenant. Right? And so life is given to them, graciously, so to speak, but then to stay in that covenant, they have to obey. Right. But of course, the old covenant is weak. It was intended to be weak. Right. And there's no way that they're able to ultimately keep that covenant because the law was written on stone tablets. It wasn't mm-hmm. written on the heart. Um, it's important for us to realize that when we talk about the new covenant, that there was an obedient human who obeyed God and Mm. merited all the favor of God because of his obedience. 
That's Jesus Christ. Right. Right. So he did all that the law commanded. And now for us, it's not because we obey perfectly like he does, but rather he obeyed in our place. Mm. His righteousness is given to us when we place our faith in him. So I think that's an important just general principle to keep in mind as we read this. But also, whenever we're coming to the book of Leviticus or anything like that, we should ask ourselves, is this quoted or is this chapter referenced later in the Bible? And in this case, Leviticus 18.5 is. It's in Galatians chapter 3. So let me just read what Galatians 3 says. Verse 10, it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Mm. Right? So that's the exact point. It's like, no, you cannot be saved by works of the law. Right. right? Paul quotes then um, when he says in uh, that same verse, For it is written, uh, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So he's quoting there from Deuteronomy 27. And he goes on, he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, implying no one's done these things, mm -hmm. right? And then he quotes, For the righteous shall live by faith. So that's coming from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And then in verse 12, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So that's the quotation from Leviticus 18.5, but he's implying in that, Nobody has done this, right? Mm -hmm. Therefore, he turns to Christ. And verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Important, he doesn't redeem us from the law as if to say that we don't have to care about the law anymore. He redeemed us from the curse of the law right, yes. because we as lawbreakers couldn't keep it. He redeems us from that curse. And then the, the totality of all that is said about the new covenant, he writes that law on our hearts, so we begin to walk in that way and to learn those things, which also speaks of the Holy Spirit, right? So he says then, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that's coming from Deuteronomy 21, explaining how Christ's death on the cross pays for the curse that was not his own, but was ours. Then verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So our salvation is by faith in the completed work of Christ. Mm. As that comes, we're also given the Holy Spirit that enables us to walk in obedience to God, but that obedience is not meriting our justification or salvation, but rather it is the fruit of what Christ has done, and it is proving that he has saved us by his grace alone. Wow. So one of the most prominent and most difficult uh, sins to discuss comes up all the time in various forms is sexual sins. Yeah. Leviticus talks a lot about sexual sins. And so what are some of the instructions about sex in Leviticus? Yeah, so chapter 18 is where all of that is listed. Um, and it would have really been simple if Adam and Eve had just never sinned. Yeah, right. right yeah. The simple command to them about sex was be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. Right? Simple, right? But when sin entered into the world then this wonderful gift that God has given to man and wife in marriage has been just um, blown apart, mm -hmm. right? And men and women can make uh, all kinds of mockery of God by sinning sexually in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. And so what Leviticus 18 is doing is to kind of address all of those. And it, it reminds us that there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, God knows exactly what is going on on the earth. I mean, he talks there in Leviticus 18 about homosexuality. He talks about all kinds of fornication. He talks about any kind of covenant breaking. He talks about um, bestiality. He talks about all these different things mm -hmm. um, that were taking place at that time. And what it is showing is that all of these ways are deviations from God's design. 
Mm -hmm. right? God's design was one man, one woman in marriage together until death do they part. And that is where the blessing of God comes because it's according to his design. Any deviation from that is going to bring pain and suffering into that relationship or beyond, right? right? And so I think that's what the law is doing. These laws cannot bring the life that the gospel of Jesus Christ can, but they do point out the deviations from what God has commanded. Uh, And so they instruct us what is good and what is not good. Mm -hmm. And what is good is what God designed in the beginning. So this is why um, when asked about divorce, Jesus doesn't go to the law. Right? The Pharisees were asking about Deuteronomy and the law on divorce that Moses gave. And Jesus says, let's go back a little bit further. Mm -hmm. Let's go back before the time that sin entered the world to God's design in Genesis 1 and 2. And that's what is good. Because of sin, the law has been given to, to point out what is wrong and also to protect but it's a weak kind of protection. Ultimately, we need the death and resurrection of Christ to transform us and help us to walk in His holiness. Um, even in the church, unfortunately, there, there are a lot of churches who uh, have fallen because of uh, sexual uh, indiscretions by leadership. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's something that we always have to guard against. I was talking to a brother just the other day, and he said, oh, I'm, I'm over that. I don't have to deal with that anymore. And I was warning him, you, know, <laughs> you always have to guard oh, yeah. yourself against sexual sin. Well, and, you know, I remember hearing a, a Christian leader answering questions from a, a newspaper, some media source, and the question to this leader was, why do you always talk about sex? Mm-hmm. And his response is, why do you always ask about it? Right, yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, the reason why Christians who are faithful to the Bible have had to say so much about this recently mm-hmm. is because of how much the culture keeps pushing this and pushing against it. Right, yeah. Right? I mean, the message of the gospel is not centered on sex, mm-hmm. but because the message of our culture is, mm-hmm. and those Christians who are seeking to be discipled by the Word of God and by Jesus Christ have to think about how do we form a biblical worldview about these things it seems as though we have to talk about it all the time. Yeah. Um, when in fact the Bible doesn't talk about it all the time, but when it does, it does so in crystal clear terms. I, I would agree with that. I think, especially starting in the 60s with the whole free love, the peace movement, oh, yeah. uh, then into the 70s and 80s where the, uh, the LGBT started to form underground, but that whole movement began to really push itself. And now, if you are not in favor of the LGBT or just sexual freedom in general, then something is wrong with you. Even yeah. in the Christian church, we're starting to see a pattern of churches yielding to the culture in this area and allowing um, people who are um, live a lifestyle of sexual sin to be in leadership, to lead worship, to lead, to preach, to teach. Mm-hmm. It's uh, really not what the Bible illustrates for us. Yeah, and I think it's important too, as we counteract that, um, not to just proof text our, our beliefs, especially mm-hmm. to those who are pushing against us, right? It's tempting to just say, okay, I'm going to quote Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as, with, as a woman, it is an abomination, and just leave it at that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, as Christians are seeking to engage others, I mean, there's a, a ministry of listening that's involved there, a ministry of building relationships that are there. Ultimately, the reason why we believe what we believe uh, about 
uh, sexuality is rooted in creation and God's design. Right. We believe that human flourishing comes when we walk in the ways that God has designed. And our goal then is not just to beat people over the head because their sin is worse than ours. That's mm -hmm. absolutely not the case. One of the things that Leviticus 18 teaches us is that none of us are sexually pure in and of ourselves. Right. Right. There's a sexual immorality that in, that plagues all of us. Right? And so we can't say that one kind of sexual sin, homosexuality or transgenderism, is worse than another. All of those are, are sinful. And right. Leviticus 18 helps us to see that. And ultimately, we need to see the whole biblical storyline to see how God's plan has uh, sex as a part of it. Yeah, I think you, you illustrated that when you said that, um, you know, we shouldn't go out and be people over the head. And when you were talking about why this subject seems to come up so much, um, you also pointed to the fact that the the culture comes after us. The LGBT demands Christians mm -hmm. to um, sign off on the behavior of sexual sin, where other sexual sins, there's no adultery mm -hmm. um, group for, trying to force Christians to say that adultery is good. So it, it, the topic comes up by demand because, like you said, it's, it's brought to us and we have to address it. Yeah. And I think, we should, like you said, we should address it in, in love. But we do. It does need to be addressed. That's right. And, and learning how to read our Bible really helps us here, you know, because in Leviticus, one argument that is made in support of just the LGBT movement today mm -hmm. is that these are Old Testament laws. They don't mm -hmm. have application to us today. I mean, we just talked about that with Leviticus 17. It needs to be read through the finished work of Christ. And so, someone would say this doesn't apply anymore mm -hmm. today. And Paul was wrong about these things. How do we think through that? Well, you know, and, and then the other argument is, well, see, we don't have these food laws anymore, and, and we don't demand people to wear clothing of, you know, one kind like they mm -hmm. do in Leviticus. And the answer to that question is, okay, but what goes back to creation? Yeah. Again, when we follow Jesus, right, Jesus is going to complete and follow every single thing that is said in the law. He's going to fulfill all of that, and he's going to go back to creation where God made one man and one woman to be the, the model for marriage that is there. Right. And that's because ultimately Christ and the church is the substance of that reality. Every marriage, man and woman together, is a reflection of that, right? Christ and his church is the, the reality. So when we read Leviticus, it's important for us to see, okay, these food laws may not apply today, or these clothing laws may not apply today, because they were given to a people at a particular time to set them apart from the nations around them. Right. That was always with an expiration date. Right? And we know that because of a place like Acts 10, where we see the food laws changing um, because now the new covenant has come into being. Right? But for a season, the people of Israel had these particular laws to separate them, which is different than what is in creation. So one of the ways we can understand which laws continue and which mm -hmm. ones may be abrogated is to look at creation. What was God's design there? And because marriage is clearly a creation ordinance, right. well, then we can see clearly what God's design is. Also, I don't think that we can say, well, we just, well, Paul is wrong or Jesus is wrong mm -hmm. because you know, in the New Testament, you know, both quoted what marriage is and what what the design, what God's plan is. That's right. So if you're going to say that it's wrong in the Old Testament and wrong in the New Testament, in the New Testament, then why are you attempting to be a Christian? Yeah. If we're not going to adhere to the Word of God, then why are we doing this? Why are we trying to force ourselves into Christianity instead yeah. of allowing Christianity to direct our way? Yeah, I mean, there there are ways in which Christianity probably throughout all, all centuries, but in particular the last 100, 150 years, has moved away from the Bible mm -hmm. as the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Right. And Christianity becomes more 
of an experience mm -hmm. uh, than it, with the Bible sprinkled in than it does, no, we are a people who plant our lives on the full revelation of God. Mm -hmm. And that's going to have a huge determining factor in the trajectory of somebody's life. Right, yeah. right? If somebody is believing the Bible to be the authoritative Word of God in their life, it's going to cause them to die to self and change their mind mm -hmm. towards the Bible. But if someone can say, yeah, I'm not sure Paul quite got it right. He was just a product of his culture. Old Testament's for another period of time. You begin to discount that. Well, then you can just pick and choose what you like. Right, right? Yeah, I like yeah. these verses over here. I get them tattooed on my arm. We're good to go. Mm -hmm. These other verses, I'm not sure about that. And so for the Christian who's walking with Jesus, like every single word is inspired by the Holy Spirit for mm -hmm. our instruction and really for our discipline uh, to be corrected and have our minds renewed according to what it says. Amen. In reading Leviticus 19, I found the first few verses interesting. Let's look at these verses, one and two specifically. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So I know that um, Leviticus, like we were talking about, was written specifically for the Israelites or to the Israelites or given to the Israelites. Mm -hmm. So, but what is our expectation of holiness as a believer today? Yeah, so uh, real simple verse, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, it is God's will that you should be holy. Hey, amen. Right? So Leviticus 19 applies to us exactly as it applied to them, except the mode of that holiness is radically different. Right. Right. For them, again, holiness included all these sacrifices, included all these festivals, going to a place where God was dwelling. Mm -hmm. For us, the Holy Spirit dwells within. Mm. Right. The spirit of holiness is sanctifying us with the word that the Holy Spirit inspired, mm -hmm. right? So the word now is used to sanctify us, as John says in John 17, sanctify them in truth, my word is truth, right? So how do we walk in holiness? We walk in obedience to the word of God, and we are empowered to do that by the Spirit, right? John, in 1 John 5, says that the law is no longer burdensome. Mm -hmm. It was a burden in the Old Testament yeah. because there was no power within to do it. Mm -hmm. But now the word is written on our heart so that in doing that, even though it's difficult, there's a power that the Spirit gives to us in that way. Yeah. And just as somebody trains for a marathon, it's hard and painful. But when you get to the end and you cross the finish line, there's a kind of satisfaction and joy in that. Mm -hmm. It's the same way as Christians walk with the Lord. Like, it's not to say that holiness is easy. Um, but there are rewards of joy even now that we have as we are walking with him in that way. Again, Peter picks up this command and applies it directly to us. You should be holy as I am holy is a command that is given to us in the New Testament. But again, it's according to the Spirit. It's according to the Word and faith in, completing, or faith in the completed work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross. So in, in verses 9 through 17, there are several shell statements. Uh, most of which are things that saying things that we should not do, like we shall not steal, we shall not lie, we shall not rob our neighbor, we shall not curse the deaf and put stumbling blocks before him. One um, is a as a statement of what we should do: we shall fear the Lord. And there's another one at the bottom: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why are there so many shell statements in Leviticus 20? Yeah, um, if we allow just the structure of Leviticus 19. Uh, to help us here, because I think that's what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, we see, again, in verse 2, there's the command uh, to be holy uh, as I am holy. And then verse 18, 
Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Like those might be the two most important commands in all of Leviticus. Right. And certainly when Jesus is asked, what is the most important command? He picks up Deuteronomy 6. You know, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Right. And both of those two things come together. You know, it's it's not hard to see how actually both of those are here, right? To treat your God as holy is to treat him as the thing that you love above all things, right? And now you have this uh, command to love your neighbors yourself. And then it just gives practical ways that that is being worked out here, right? So maybe if we think about it this way, what is holiness? Mm-hmm. Holiness is always loving what is rightly to be loved, mm-hmm. right? If we're to, I mean, God is holy, We're to love him above all things. If we are pure in our love of God, we will be holy. And if we are holy, it will impact every single thing that we love. We will love what is true and good and right, and we will hate what is not. We will hate the things that God hates, right? Our heart will be uh, turned towards the things that God has turned towards, and it will be turned away from the things God's heart has turned away from. Um, One place we see this together, in fact, I I quoted earlier 1 Thessalonians 4.3, and it's God's will that you should be holy. But before that, there is a prayer that Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. And he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another, for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness Mm. before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all of his saints. So what a wonderful prayer that we could pray for one another. And what a wonderful way that that helps us to see that as God uh, increases and abounds our love for one another, it actually is what is doing the work of holiness in us. So throughout church history, there have been, you know, uh, monks and nuns and others who just kind of take themselves away from the world to pursue holiness. Right, yeah. But in that, they're not loving their neighbor. Yeah, right? that's true. I mean, they may be in their small monastic community or whatever, but, you know, we're called to, with the power of Spirit, to go out into the world to love our neighbors. And as we do that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, God is sanctifying us. He is making us holy in that process. And so, I think we see the roots of that in Leviticus 19, but obviously the fruit of that comes in Christ and through Christ to us. Right. So, nothing is new under the sun. Leviticus 20 addresses child sacrifice and the punishment for it. Should we consider abortion or infanticide child sacrifice? Probably. I think so. I mean, it's just a, it's a heavy topic. It's a very right? heavy topic. Um, you know, because I, I think about it, I saw this just the other day, uh, someone saying that those who are abortion-minded uh, are typically not, you know, cold-blooded killers. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, is, this is part of just the whole debate that's been going on in Georgia and Alabama and places mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. right now. And I think we just have to say um, that those who are abortion-minded are looking for a way out, a way of escape, Mm-hmm. Right, the gospel offers that. Yes. Right? No matter where uh, we find ourselves, no matter what sin we've committed, no matter what consequence we have coming to us because of the things that we've done, mm-hmm. the gospel is the sacrifice mm-hmm. that provides a way out. But what abortion does is to provide a different shedding of blood to get out of the situation that someone is in. Right. Right. And in particular, I mean, for a woman to do that. Right. And, and so. Um, you know, I, I do think in our age of um, technology, 
right, that have so many conveniences to us, some will use or look at abortion as a means of contraception mm -hmm. after the fact. Right, yeah. Right? They don't want to live with the consequences that are there. Therefore, they're willing to use this as a means to pursue that convenience, that lifestyle, that career, wh whatever the case may be. Obviously, there are cases that are far more complicated than that in cases of, of rape and incest. But obviously, why you know, solve a problem of sin with another act mm -hmm. of taking life? Yeah. Right? And, and so I think we have to be really careful just in the way that we communicate these things. Mm -hmm. But clearly, the Old Testament speaks of child sacrifice and the punishes for that. Um, again, these are laws that are given to a theocratic government, a community that is there, in ways that we can't apply today. Right. right? We can say, I believe, that, that it is a kind of child sacrifice, that abortion is a child sacrifice, but I wouldn't be one to penalize a woman for that in the way that it would have been in the Old Testament. Right, yeah. Right? As much as to have compassion and care for that person and, and to warn, it's like, this is the taking of life and it won't go away on your soul mm -hmm. uh, in making these decisions. Yeah. In the Old Testament, um, or just in the Bible in general, when we see child sacrifice, uh, it's usually to, in a sense of worship. Mm -hmm. And I would wonder, I would go as far as to say that even today, because the prominent source of worship outside of Christianity is yeah. self-worship yeah. and self-preservation. Yeah. And to that end, when people are sacrificing majority of the time, it, seemingly it seems when people are, are having an abortion, yep. it's because they don't want to, like you said, deal with the consequences. So for self, yep. they sacrifice a life yep. so that they can continue on with whatever they're, they're doing with their life. Yeah, I, it's really helpful. I think that's exactly right. And it's really helpful when we look at the decisions that we're making in the context of worship, mm -hmm. right? I think about the fact that I am tempted to sacrifice my children on a daily and weekly basis for ministry, mm -hmm. for work, right. for career, for any of those things. And I can say no to the time that I need to spend with my children and my family, mm -hmm. sacrificing them in order to do something else, right? And so, yeah, the consequence is not as bloody the consequence is not as life or death, but there's a consequence to that. Definitely. Right? And so the thing that we worship the most is going to lead us into our ethical decisions. Mm -hmm. right? And we often forget that. right? We are image bearers, and what we worship, we will become like. We'll mm -hmm. see that as we get to Psalm 115. right? And so in this case of um, child sacrifice, especially in the Old Testament period, uh, there are certain gods, Molech in particular, mm -hmm. who demanded child sacrifice. So what happens when they do that? I mean, this is a, a god who is willing to shed blood in order for blessings to come. Mm -hmm. Well, the people who sacrifice their children to Molech, they're becoming like that god. Mm -hmm. right? And what's most disturbing later on in Israel's history is the covenant people of God are doing that in the very valley that is right next to the temple. Mm -hmm. right? So again, even as we think about abortion, uh, oh, it's out there in the world. No, it's in our churches too. That's right. <laughs> it's yeah. not far away. There's a temptation for those in the church for all sorts of reasons. And uh, so we need to talk about these things. We need to think carefully from the Bible about this. We need to be compassionate as we talk about this um, and to see that ultimately the death and resurrection of Christ, the mm -hmm. presence of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Word of God, this is the path to life that protects us from self-securing ways. Right. 
Tough subject. Yeah. Leviticus 21, 10 through 12 reads, The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garment, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. What do we learn about priest in Leviticus? Yeah, so if you remember, uh, the whole book of Leviticus is given to the priests, mm-hmm. right? And so much of the instructions is related to that. It relates to the people of Israel as well because they're uh, a royal priesthood, but in particular, we see things like this where it's a focus on um, the sons of Aaron, mm-hmm. right? So language here, the priest who is chief among his brothers, is an indication of the high priest, Right, which would be a son of Aaron and would probably be the oldest son of Aaron until that high priest dies and then another son of Aaron would take his place. Right. So what's important to see here is that this role of the high priest and the sons of Aaron is almost entirely directed toward the holy place of God. And they are not allowed to go out to defile themselves among the people especially to touch a dead body, mm-hmm. right? Because again, in the cultic system of Israel, death was the greatest uh, form of uncleanness, right? So if we remember that, when we see Jesus going to the, um, the demoniac right by the Sea of Galilee, where is that demoniac? He is in a graveyard. Mm. There is cultic symbolism in that, that here is a man who has been put out from his people, that he is naked and living in a graveyard. Mm -hmm. And yet the Son of God goes to him, raises him back to life, so to speak. He makes him clean. So it shows the power uh, that Jesus has. But it also reminds us of the weakness of the priest in the Old Testament. Right? That death, if it touched them, would make them unclean and therefore they couldn't serve God. If the priest couldn't serve in the presence of God, the whole system would be um, put in jeopardy. Right? So that's why these laws are applied to priests and why it's so important there. So at first glance, it looks like Leviticus 21 could be discriminating against disabled people. Is that true or should we be reading that differently? Yeah, so if you keep reading there, um, one of the things that we find uh, of the priests, these sons of Aaron, uh, is the fact that those who are uh, hunchback, uh, those who have a, a mutilated face, a limb that is too long. So I'm reading here from verse 18. It says, For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man... With a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles, no man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest who has a blemish, should come near to offer the Lord's food offering. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. So, I mean, just first glance of reading that, it's like, okay, how, what are we, what are we supposed to do with this, right? right? I mean, it shows again the holiness of God and only those who are perfect in every way can go into the presence of God, mm-hmm. right? And so when the priests were chosen, they were consecrated, and they were clothed with this beautiful garments. That's why they couldn't tear the garments earlier, because in so many ways, they were to represent a perfect man who's coming to the presence of God, and then that perfect man was then to come into the presence of the people to display God's presence there. Mm-hmm. Right, so these sons of Aaron, with all of these defects, couldn't be there. But here's what it also means. And this is where it's really encouraging. I think it's incredibly encouraging to those who perhaps question God's goodness and the disabilities that they may have, or mm-hmm. just the way that God has made them in this life. And that is this. These 
men could not enter the presence of God if they had any of these blemishes. But the promise in the new covenant, the promise through death and resurrection of Christ, is that all will be able to draw near. Right, yes. So what does that mean? It means that on the last day, when we physically are able to draw near, that our resurrected bodies will be made whole. Amen. They will be made perfect. There will not be any blemishes. There will not be anything of that sort. So what Jesus Christ did in his death and resurrection was not only to purify and cleanse the conscience, which he did, and which we experience in part now, he also made provision and promise for the resurrection. And in his resurrection, the book of Hebrews teaches us that it is this resurrection that enables him to go into the presence of God and to live and to intercede for us. Right. And it also promises that those who are in Christ on the last day will be able to stand before him holy uh, and wholesome. Uh, so I think that's how we can apply that to us today. Let's, let's take a look at Leviticus 26, verses 3 through 9. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of the sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and you shall fall before the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. Leviticus 26 is a chapter that gives a breathtaking promise, or promises, and severe warnings. Does this apply to us today? Again, I think no and yes, right? right. I mean, uh, how many of us are reading the Bible to make sure that our grape harvest is doing really well? Yeah. Right? I think naturally, when this is applied, and it's often applied by, you know, prosperity preachers, right? Uh, it's just kind of naturally um, allegorized, right? Uh, yeah, they were agrarian, they had their grain, they had their rain, they had their wealth, they had their, their victory. But if you want victory, right, mm -hmm. here's what you have to do. But we need to keep in mind that this was a very physical promise to a people in a land who uh, needed the reins of God in order for them to be blessed, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, just the location of Israel was one, there wasn't a river like the Nile that um, irrigated the land. It was rains that the Lord blessed the people with, and that blessing was dependent upon their keeping of the covenant. Again, yeah. this is the old covenant, right? So no, it doesn't apply to us in the same way. Um, again, it applies to us through what Jesus Christ uh, has done. Right? So just a few ways that we can apply this to us. Um, so I think the first thing um, is to observe the way that it speaks about walking. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's just walking in these ways is a key theme. It gets picked up in verse 3 and, and then later in the chapter. Um, and it stresses how God longs for us to just walk with Him, to be in relationship with Him. That is one thing that continues from Old Testament to New, is that the God that the people of Israel walked with is the God that we walk with mm -hmm. through the finished work of Christ. Yeah. Right? So there is some language that helps us with that. I think secondly, the, the earthiness of the promises uh, that are there identify the sort of covenant that this will be. Again, it is a very physical covenant that is there. It's not to say the new covenant is a spiritual, or I should say an immaterial covenant. Sometimes people use the word spiritual and immaterial synonymously. The new covenant is a spiritual covenant, it is a Holy Spirit covenant, but it has physical ramifications, mm -hmm. right? 
I mean, Christ is raised from the dead as the first fruits of that new covenant. Uh, And one day we will be raised from the dead. So all these promises of a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, the blessings physically, like we have something even better than that in Mm. the resurrection and the resurrection and recreation of the world uh, that is to come. For today, I think we should see that the promises that are fulfilled to us are what is given to us in the Holy Spirit, right? right? So uh, Ephesians 1.3 speaks of the fact that every spiritual blessing has been given to us in Christ. And by the end of Ephesians 1 verse 13, there's the promise that we have the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the inheritance that we're going to have. And what is that inheritance? It is a place in the kingdom of God. Amen. It is a place in the new heavens and the new earth. And today, we are sojourners who do not have a land. Right? right. Israel sojourned and then they are brought into the land. The people of God today are sojourners who are looking forward to a land. Mm-hmm. Not there yet. Therefore, these physical promises are not given to us yet, but they will be. And they will be given to us in ways that cannot be taken away, like the people in the Old Testament and they'll be given to us in ways that are far greater than what they experience. Mm-hmm. Right? So there are all sorts of ways that Leviticus 26 can apply to us and encourage our hearts, but it is not, if you do these things, then God will fill your garages filled <laughs> with fancy cars, right. or you know, secure you in your workplace, or promise you that you will never have a miscarriage. Those are promises in the Old Testament that cannot be applied directly to us today. Right. And I don't see any representation of uh, of prosperity gospel of the prosperity gospel in the New Testament. No, no. In fact, when we read this Leviticus 26 as it's applied to the New Testament, Mm -hmm. these promises of God dwelling with us have to do with worship and the way we walk in holiness. Right, yeah. So what is the promise of the New Covenant? It is promising us that we will walk in righteousness as Christ is righteous. And that when we are raised from the dead on the last day, it's because Christ's righteousness has been given to us by faith in what he has done. Mm. We have a family book study that you know, I've told you about it before. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that we we're discussing this weekend was how um, Christians, how the church has changed what the word blessing means. Mm-hmm. Like for us today, seemingly the word blessing, if you get a new car, you're blessed. If you yeah. get a new job, you're blessed. Not to say that those things aren't good sure. and, and, and even necessary, but the argument was made that we should look at blessings. The specific word that was used in this context was virtue. God has helped me to overcome a specific sin, and there's mm-hmm. blessing in that. Yeah. You know, that is reward. That is something that is far greater than money when you're growing in your relationship with Christ versus growing in your natural, um, physical things that the world has yeah. to offer. Yeah, that's a good word, brother. Good word. This concludes our discussion of the Leviticus portion of our reading plan. As you follow along with your reading plan, if you have any questions or comments that you would like us to discuss, please send them to viamayas at ovc.org. May hear a response in an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.